0: Support for the show comes from Mercury. Startups, you don't need to settle for cumbersome banking experiences to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with an effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and saving accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for PropG comes from ServiceNow. Seems everyone is talking about AI. The hype's everywhere. It's writing college essays, running earnings reports, and fabricating my voice so well that I'll no longer need to record podcast ads. Just kidding about the last one. But you know what's not a joke? ServiceNow's ability to put AI to work across your business. With their intelligent platform, you can improve customer experiences, help non-coders to code, accelerate your IT team's productivity, and resolve HR cases faster. So work can actually work better for everyone. So stop the hype and start putting AI to work. Go to servicenow.com slash gen AI to see why the world works with ServiceNow. Welcome to the Prop G Show's Office Hours. This is the part of the show where we answer your questions about business, big tech, entrepreneurship, And whatever else is on your mind, if you'd like to submit a question, please email a voice recording to officehours at propertymedia.com. Again, that's officehours at propertymedia.com. By the way, a little inside baseball here, a little color, a little texture on Office Hours. I do not see the questions before they are played. Our producer, Caroline Chagrin, will feed me some stats uh, for my answers such that I look, you know, like more of a baller, more of a wonk. More of an academic, more more of someone who actually knows what the fuck they're talking about, which oftentimes isn't the case. But I want to be authentic uh, and I want to be real. So these aren't off-the-cuff answers because these are things we think a lot about. But this is, you know, we're trying to give it to you straight. We're trying to give you, you know, all salts and no chip. That's right. That's right. I'll take that 1942 tequila. Neat. Neat. Straight up, I don't drink tequila. It makes me anxious the next day. And at this point, I do not need more anxiety in my life. Can you hear it in my voice now? I'm over-caffeinated. I'm worried about everything, worried about everything. It's strange, it's strange. Let's talk more about me before we get into office hours. From the age of about, I don't know, zero to 35, I was literally sleepwalking through life. I almost failed out of UCLA about three times, which would have been bad for me on a cosmic level. I was never very good at any job. I think I've been fired from almost every job I've ever had. That's why I started my own business, is I wanted to take away that that risk. Uh, I wasn't fired from Morgan Stanley, but it was a two-year program, so I made it through 24 months. Yay, Scott. But I was never just that worried about anything. And I think anxiety plays a role instinctually, and that is you should be worried there might be a lion behind those waving reads because occasionally there is, and that shit will eat you. And so anxiety is actually a productive instinct and emotion. What happens is it's hard to modulate your anxiety. So when I was young, you know, I could have easily been run over my moped. Why the fuck did I have a moped? Cause I wasn't worried about it and didn't wear a helmet. Why? Cause I wasn't worried about it. Why did I have a car without airbags? Cause I just wasn't anxious about, about uh, dying in a car accident when I should have been. And then from about 35 to 45, I think I had just the right amount of anxiety. Worried about stuff that I should be worried about, but not needlessly worried. Now I am needlessly worried about stupid shit all the time. I don't want to say I suffer from anxiety because some people are literally paralyzed. But if I'm really worried about something and I start freaking out about something, it's usually not that thing. It's usually about me. What I find is it's not the shit you're worried about that gets you. And there's actually... It's a syndrome, or it's an effect, or a principle that's been named. I forget what it's called, but in some, when you're worried about something, you prepare against it. It's the shit you don't see coming that gets you. Anyway, a little bit of a digression, a little bit of a left turn in Dogtown. Let's go to the questions. Question number one.
1: Hi, Scott. This is Craig from Boulder, Colorado, and I'm calling to ask you about eBay. I listen to Prof G and Pivot regularly, and you never mention the company. Is that because it lacks anything newsworthy or relevant, and do you see it going anywhere? I'm 37 years old and left a marketing career I began right out of college to start a full-time reselling business on eBay almost two years ago. Uh, now my business is primarily in outdoor sports apparel, and the business is sustaining myself and my fiance in a mortgage in Boulder, but I fear eBay has or will continue to lack a defining new story or customer features that will maintain its usefulness, especially for a person running a business on it. There are a few factors I think that are working in its favor, including more people at home buying and selling things through the pandemic, the Marie Kondo or the clean-out effect, and interest in sustainability through buying second-hand. So my question is said in the context that eBay was once considered a giant of e- e-commerce, and while it seems to still have brand awareness, what can they do to maintain or grow their position?
0: A really thoughtful question. So eBay was one of the original horsemen, one of the original ballers, Craig. It was, you know, sort of Yahoo, eBay, Amazon, Netscape. I don't know who the kind of the original, the original fang was or the original gangsters. eBay was right in there. And not that long ago, about the turn of the millennium, kind of 20, maybe even 15 years ago, eBay had a similar market capitalization as Amazon. And now, I mean, I think Amazon is like 100 or 200 times more valuable than eBay. As a matter of fact, when eBay spun PayPal, their payment system that they incubated internally at eBay, uh, PayPal is now worth, I think, 20 or 30 times what eBay is worth. There's no doubt about it, eBay is a disappointment. I don't know if it was a wrong strategy. If people just moved away from the idea of auctions and just wanted everyday low prices from Amazon, but eBay has not commanded the space it occupied in almost 15 years. And one of the things, or one of the things I remember about eBay, I teach a brand strategy course, and there's something called a brand essence, and that is at the very core of a company's brand, what is the emotion you're supposed to feel. And eBay's was joy and boundless opportunity. And I always thought that was a wonderful brand essence, if you will. Joy and boundless opportunity. And it really covered two stakeholders. The first is the joy part. It's fun to bid on eBay. You feel like a sense of like, Abaco 835. I'm going to get that Pez dispenser. You watch. I'm coming in and bidding $60. It's just, and then you get a notification saying you've won your auction. There's joy in that. It's fun. It's gamified. It's cool. It's fun. There's joy in that. And then the boundless opportunity is that, Craig, there are supposedly half a million families like yours who make their living on eBay. And that's wonderful. It brought life to a part of the economy. This was kind of the original gig economy, except it wasn't exploiting people, that you could make a living, a good living, using eBay as a platform. And I don't think they have a reputation for being as rapacious, and maybe that was the problem with their third-party sellers uh, on the platform. But there's just no getting around it. The company... It's just a shadow of itself strategically. Uh, In April, eBay reported it ended the first quarter of 2021 with 187 million active buyers, up 7% from a year earlier. Annual active sellers grew by 8% for a total of 20 million global active sellers. eBay stock actually outpaced Walmart's in 2020. That's a bit misleading because I bet I'd like to uh, zoom out and see what it's done in the last 10 years. By the end of 2020, eBay stock price had increased about 38%. Uh, from the beginning of the year, in comparison, Walmart went up about 20%. Meanwhile, Amazon, <laughs> up 71%. But according to Bloomberg, eBay warned investors in April that its sales boost, which the e-commerce company largely credits through the pandemic, and stimulus checks may be coming to an end as businesses reopen. I wonder really what's going to happen with eBay. It feels to me like eBay needs to make a bold move or do something or be acquired or I don't know. It just feels as if, I mean, I just never even hear about eBay anymore, but look, boss, it feels like you've figured out something. I wonder if there are other platforms. I mean, the one I immediately think of is Shopify. It feels like Shopify has come in and just absolutely taken eBay's thunder and then some. And instead of an auction format, is figuring out a way to provide tools and true infrastructure for third-party sellers such as yourself and be a real partner as opposed to Amazon, which partners with third-party sellers the way a virus partners with a host. It ends up ends up working for one of them, not the other. And that's always Amazon. But anyways, back to eBay, it doesn't command the space it occupies, but if you have the ability to source merchandise and find platforms that will sell your product, um, you know, right on, my brother. It sounds like you're living the life. Colorado, Colorado. Thanks for the
2: question. Next question. Hey, Prof G. This is Will McKelvey calling you from Dayton, Ohio. I'm starting the MBA program at Berkeley Haas this fall, but my question isn't about business school. It's about venture capital. Specifically, the fact that 80% of all U.S. VC investment currently lands in three states, California, New York, and Massachusetts. Given the rapid acculturation to some level of remote engagement brought on by the pandemic and internal migration data that showed that Americans are on net leaving places like New York, San Francisco, and L.A., even before 2020, what do you think the likelihood is of venture capital becoming more dispersed? More broadly, what's your outlook on the future of startups in B.C. from a geographic perspective? Thanks. Go Bears.
0: Will from Dayton, Ohio. Oh, my God, you sexy beast. You got into Haas. People don't know that. So I was on the uh, advisory board of the board of directors for the Haas School of Business. I'm a, an alum there. Changed my life. Changed my life. Total tuition of, I went there from 2000 to 2002. Actually, I went there from 1990 to 1992, but I've decided to pretend I'm a decade younger. Uh, Botox, you know, peels, working out a lot. What's the term for that? Midlife crisis, midlife crisis, bad news, it's going strong. Good news, I will grow out of it in 40 to 50 years. I use that joke a lot, it never gets old. But listen, boss, one of the many things that people do not know about Haas is we are one of the most selective schools in the nation, which by the way, I don't think is a good thing, but uh, my point is you must be an incredibly impressive young man to have gained admittance to the Haas School of Business. changed my life, Um I think for a total of $4,000 in tuition, I got an MBA and it kind of began an upward spiral for me professionally. So I owe California taxpayers and uh, the vision of the Regents of the University of California a great deal. Anyways, congratulations on getting into Haas. So back to your question, back to your question. So lately, California has been going through a bit of a bust. CNBC reported that from July 2019 to July 2020, 136,000 more people left California than moved there. It's the 12th time since 1900 the state has had a net migration loss and the third largest loss ever recorded. California saw booms during the gold rush, after World War II, when the U.S. was investing in the aerospace and defense industries, and again in the 80s and early 90s with the rise of Silicon Valley. The state went through busts in the mid-90s when the U.S. cut back on aerospace spending, again during the Great Recession. And now it's going through another one. In December, it recorded its third consecutive year of net migration loss. One of my favorite stats is that the, the San Francisco commercial real estate sector registered the lowest and highest occupancy rates in a 12-month period. So right before the pandemic, lowest occupancy rates ever recorded for office space in San Francisco. Just a few months later, post-pandemic, highest vacancy rates. According to the National Venture Capital Association, the U.S. attracted 51% of global VC investment dollars in 2020. That's down from 2004 when the U.S. held 83% of global investments. Within the U.S., you're absolutely right. VC investments are still kind of largely concentrated in California, New York, and Massachusetts. Those three states account for 85% of total U.S. VC assets under management in 2020. New Mexico, Kansas, Kentucky, Wisconsin, and Washington. We're among the states with the highest year-over-year increases in BC assets under management in 2020. Kentucky? Who would have thought that? Off a low base, I bet. Kentucky? There you go. Uh, the innovation state. At the end of 2020, 37 states had more than $100 million in assets under management, up from the 31 states with the same amount at the end of 2019. To put that in perspective, however, just one Silicon Valley VC, Andreessen Horowitz, has $17 billion under management. What... Do people not talk about what is the key, in my opinion, the secret sauce to a, quote-unquote, venture-driven ecosystem or a large uh, startup ecosystem that attracts capital? Simple. Is there a world-class engineering university? Look at Stanford. Look at Berkeley. Look at any company that's added more than $10 billion in stakeholder value in tech within a 12-month period, much less $100 billion in value within a five-year period. And I'll show you a company that is a bike ride from a world-class engineering university. What happens? Two guys meet in the Stanford PhD program and say, hey, let's build a list dialoguing all websites. And they go, I know, let's do search. Maybe we can run ads along the right rail. Okay. And then they stay in Stanford Uh, or they stay in Palo Alto and they start hiring people and a bunch of people make billions of dollars. And those people say, you know, we like the dry weather of the valley. And they start VC funds and they put down roots and they create, and then more and more uh, people coming out of Stanford and Berkeley get funded. And it just kind of creates again, this upward spiral. Why are Massachusetts and New York number two? Hello, world-class universities. Hello, Harvard. Hello, New York, NYU, uh, Columbia, Cornell. I mean, for God's sakes, hello, Boston, MIT. Heard of them? Heard of them, MIT? So in my home state, Florida, I've actually had some elected representatives reach out to me and ask for advice on how to create a more robust technology ecosystem in Florida. And I would say the same thing. It's gonna take decades and it's gonna take billions of dollars. And it's called called a world-class engineering and technology university, which we do not have. The University of Florida is, Good, it's not great. What what's the MIT? What's the Stanford? What's the Berkeley of Florida? It's not there. It's not there. That is really the ground zero uh, for a technology ecosystem. Even Spotify was founded by people from, I forget the name of the university in, in Stockholm, or I'm sure someone will tweet at me. It's this university and we're very proud of it. Uh, look at BlackBerry. Look at Shopify. They're with. Uh, they're in Waterloo, where there's a great technology university. Olapic, a tiny company I was on the board of, got all of their engineers in Cordoba. There's a great university in Cordoba that's fantastic in engineering. Anyways, that's the forward leaning investment, my brother, and that is how, in my opinion, states maintain their leadership. There's going to be. There's going to need to be an interstate tax treaty such that a guy like Elon Musk can't sit on an unrealized gain. And when he start, when he decides that he wants to start cashing out, he pieces out to a Texas or a Florida. Miami's tech boom right now, if you will, it's not really a tech boom. It's a lot of tech entrepreneurs have moved there because, because they're sitting on huge unrealized gains. And when they start realizing those gains, they'd rather get taxed 14% less than they would in California or New York. So hopefully they will take those gains and reinvest in the Florida ecosystem. And Miami has a huge running start right now. It's getting a lot of attention, a really thoughtful, aggressive mayor, great quality of life, but we're gonna need some sort of interstate tax code because I just don't think that's sustainable. But anyway, cities are like asset classes. They go up and down, but in general, in general, Cities, the death of cities has been greatly exaggerated. People aren't leaving San Francisco for Modesto or Visalia. Visalia? Visalia? My college roommate, my freshman roommate was from Visalia. Died alone of AIDS. Another story. Anyways, he was from Visalia. People aren't leaving San Francisco uh, to go to Modesto or Visalia. They're leaving to go to Austin or Miami. So cities are still the place to be. Cities are still where you want to get to. Greatest concentration of humanity means, or whenever you get a concentration of humans, you get innovation, you get creativity, you get great bars, which is important, which is important. And you get opportunities to bump off of people. You get more opportunities for business deals. You get more opportunities for, to find a right partner and mate. I always say to anybody, anybody when you're young, unless you're really tied down or have incredible opportunities where you are, get to a city. Anyways, anyways, where were we headed with this? I think you're going to see a boom in some tier two cities, quote unquote. But it'll be the tier two cities with great universities. Austin, is that tier one now? Maybe. You know who else is going to do really well? You heard it here. St. Louis, St. Louis. Why? WashU, which has a world-class engineering program. And WashU has become an incredible university. So what's going to happen? A couple of seniors are going to develop some dumbass app it's gonna get hundred million in funding and it's gonna go public or get bought for two billion. And they're gonna say, you know what? St. Louis is kind of cooler. one of them is gonna meet the guy of their dreams and decide to settle down there. They'll start a small VC fund when they get bought out. And then boom, St. Louis is a tech player. That's what's gonna happen. There is some dispersal. People are more mobile because of the pandemic has shown us we can work from almost anywhere. But the tier two cities with world-class universities are gonna be the ones that pick up the slack here. Thank you for the question. We have one quick break before our final two questions. Stay with us. Support for property G comes from Fundrise. You know the adage, buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. Support for our show comes from Sonos. Usually when we read ads for the show, I get a whole page of talking points they want me to hit, But get this, Sonos sends me their latest portable speaker, Move 2, and no script. They just want me to share with you what I honestly think of it. And after listening to the speaker, I get why Sonos is so confident that I'd have good things to say. It's fantastic. It's incredible that this kind of fidelity and acoustics and sound comes from such a little device. I mean, it really packs a punch. And also, I have been buying Sonos for 10 or 15 years now. I know the CEO. I know people uh, that work there. They're just good people and a nice company, and they make an outstanding product. The battery life of Move 2 is so good giving you up to 24 hours of playback. And because it's weather and drop resistant, you can bring it anywhere. Just think of all the places you could listen to this podcast. What a thrill Seriously, you won't believe how good I sound on this speaker. Every stream counts, people. Come on, come on, invest in this relationship. To learn more about move to and other sonos speakers, visit sonos.com. That's s-o-n-o-s.com. Welcome back. Question number three.
1: Hey Prof G, this is Chris Messina. I recently had a call with my mom and she told me that she sold her house in Florida to move back up to New England to be closer to family. I was suggesting that even though the housing market has been hot, she should probably not try to time the market to buy her next home, but instead be willing to just spend a little bit more to get the property that she wants sooner. However, she's concerned that we're overdue for a bubble burst and that she should wait. But it seems to me like the pundits have been anticipating a bust for several years And it just hasn't happened. And then, of course, the pandemic happened. Now, maybe low interest rates are one way to explain why there hasn't been a bubble burst. But my question to you, which will, of course, inform the advice that I give my mom, is this. If you were to apply your framework about the great dispersion to when the next financial bubble might burst should we expect the same kind of massive bubble burst that we've seen before, like with a financial crisis? Or are we moving towards something more like a bubble wrap era of small distributed flare-outs, a la GameStop, Dogecoin, and others, largely thanks to the, to the financialization of basically everything. Bottom line, what advice would you give to my mom about when to buy her next and probably last retirement home?
0: Uh, Chris from Oakland? Uh- uh, let me just say that uh, taking a vested interest in your mother's well-being and applying your skills and your leadership and you know, just taking care of her the way she took care of you, reflects a lot of character on your part. And it's also gonna be something in 10, 20, 30 years, you're gonna treasure that you did that. It's gonna just make you feel better about yourself. And it's gonna be a nod to your mom and to your God and uh, make you a better dad and set a good example. You know, just good for you, good for your relationship, with your mom, good for the planet. So I don't know, this is situational. I don't know where the, the house, I don't know your weight class economically. I don't know how you know the resources and the money you have. I can tell you what I did. When my mom my mom when my mom got diagnosed with cancer for the second time, she thought, if I just work three or five more years, I'll have enough money to buy a house. And I said, look, you've got cancer for the second time. life is finite. Let's cash out now. Let's sell the house in LA and let's buy the house in Las Vegas. And we didn't try and time the market. I think it is really difficult to time the market because as crazy as real estate is now, there's always a chance that you sell one house and think you're going to rent and try and thread the needle and time the market and the market goes up. And then you're not only not in the house uh, that you wanted for your mom, you're not only Um, have to move again, but you're kicking yourself because prices kept going up. It is very hard to time the market. And with something like a house and consumption, um, what I would suggest is you get her to her next home. And if you're in a position to help her out, the priority right now is getting your mom to a home she loves and freeing up her mental and physical energy such that she can spend more time with her family and doing things she loves. It goes really fast. It goes really fast. From the time my mom moved to Las Vegas to the time she passed away, it was, I think maybe seven or eight years. And it just went like, it just went by so fast. And I was so happy. I was in a position to help her. I wasn't making a lot of money, but I was making some money. I was in a position, you know, to help her get a little bit nicer place than she would have on her own. You know, we bought a place in a seniors community, in uh, Summerlin, Nevada, the Del, I think it was called the Dell Webb Active Living Community or something like that, and I gave her a little bit of money or helped out such that she could buy a home facing the golf course. And then uh, I had done some work with William Snowman; they were really nice people. They gave me a discount, and I was able to outfit my mom's entire house with Pottery Barn, which she just thought was just so elegant and so cool and hip. And it was just a very nice moment for us. So I think. If you're doing well, to be in a position to help your mom is just so rewarding. I wouldn't try and time the market. Get your mom to a nice place. Get her set such that she can focus on. And and look, that's her last house. By the way, when my mom died, I ended up selling the house for less than we bought it for. We lost money. And you know what? It was worth it, boss. Get your mom to a great home such that she can focus on the really important things, and that is her relationship with you and her grandkids and just enjoying her life. Thanks for the question, Chris, and and I, I just think it's wonderful that you're focused in, uh, on, on taking care of your mom. It, it speaks to you
2: and your character. Question number four. Hi, Scott, Troy from Washington here. I want to ask your thoughts on public service for our younger generations. At the end of your Esther Perel interview, you said that veterans sacrificed and invested the most for the US. On a recent Pivot episode, you mentioned that your rules for your kids were no motorcycles, no tattoos, and no military service. I appreciate the humor, but the sentiment aligns with the perception of career risk and personal risk associated with public service and that those risks aren't necessary for anyone with better options in the private sector. I got an MBA after serving in the Army and now work in tech. I'd love for more citizens to have the chance to serve, whether through Peace Corps, Teach for America, the military, or the many other forms of public service. How do you think we can improve the brand of public service and help encourage the young people to see service as a launch pad for their careers instead of a risk? Could an optional service program for young people help mitigate the effects of increasing costs of education and challenges in finding work? A uh, really
0: thoughtful question. So I've been saying throughout the pandemic that there should be a Corona Corps where we assemble a fighting force of a half a million 18 to 25 year olds best suited to fight COVID-19. And now, given that the U.S. is vaccinating at five times the rate of the rest of the world, and roughly 40% of the U.S. population has been fully vaccinated, I believe we should, and we discussed this with our guest, Neil Ferguson, we should be deploying our resources and human capital to help the countries that are most in need. Uh, India's up to 400,000 infections a day. Uh, In April, NPR reported Brazil's average daily death toll reached above 3,000, the highest in the world at the time. I read a report somewhere that said they think there could be 100,000 deaths a day at some point in India. It just feels like there's an incredible opportunity for Americans to realize our connective tissue is America um, and to coordinate some sort of public service around Helping others around the world. I think it's an incredible opportunity, maybe the biggest opportunity that's been presented to America in a long time. As it relates to public service, so I was sort of joking that my kids can't do military service. I think military service is wonderful. I, I wish I had served. Um for me, it's just I'm and as I said earlier in the show, I get anxious. And the idea of my kids being overseas, my boys, I just I don't I don't personally think I could relax. But having said that, um, I don't, I don't in any way mean to disparage it. I think it's I think service in the agency of something bigger than yourself is hugely important. Uh, I think a lot of it is not only providing opportunities to people to serve and giving them the accoutrements or rewarding that service, but I think a lot of it is changing the zeitgeist in our society where since the 80s, I think Reagan did a lot of damage when he started diminishing, government and its employees. And uh, my sense is while we still respect the military, we've, we've largely decided or stereotyped that anyone that goes to work for a government agency, even if it's the Peace Corps, I guess the Peace Corps is a pretty good brand, isn't a baller, isn't really killing it. And uh, I wonder how we encourage, create incentives both uh, economically and psychologically in terms of the status those folks play in society Uh, to um, enact public service. But I think that this notion of a, I called it a Corona Corps, but a V Corps, where we take medical professionals and individuals who've been fully vaccinated and coordinate their invasion, if you will, of countries who need help and are in a desperate situation. I think it's an enormous uh, opportunity. But thank you for the question. Uh, Public service to me is a big answer. And also I'm a little I'm a little self-conscious saying that because I haven't engaged really in public service. I give money away and it makes me feel good and it makes me feel important. But in terms of being generous with my own time and my own sacrifice and putting my own career off, I really didn't, I didn't serve. And it's something I regret. Anyways, anyways, I think it's a wonderful thing. I think we should, uh, there's a GI Bill uh, for people who serve a lot of, one of the most wonderful scholarships at NYU Stern is uh, I think it was the Fertitta brothers, the founders of UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship created a scholarship for veterans. And they're generally just super impressive people. And one thing you can do, and I try to do, is I try to give a second or a third look to anyone anyone's CV or LinkedIn profile uh, when they send me an inquiry for a job when they have served uh, in uniform. Anyways, thanks for the question. That's all for the episode. Again, if you'd like to submit one, please email a voice recording to officehours at profgmedia.com. Our producers are Caroline Shagrin and Drew Burrows. Claire Miller is our assistant producer. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to The Prof G Show from the Vox Media Podcast Network. We will catch you on Thursday.